and add infrastructure and structures around it and, and layers and layers of human tradition and additional laws and how that corrupts. We're going to see how, how religion seeks to bring life into situations of death and does precisely the opposite. It brings eternal death into the, 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 the human existence. It, it damns souls forever and it ruins all that it touches. Human tradition, because of the nature of human sin, is damnable. I'm going to read now from verse 1 through 23. And this is uh, uh, a period of Jesus' ministry where uh, he's been largely ministering around the top side of, of, of the country in Galilee, his home sort of town and country around the Sea of Galilee. He's been across that a few times. There's been a few storms, many miracles around it. We're getting to the point of the uh, uh, book of Mark where uh, his popularity is going to start trending downwards and he's going to start making a beeline for Jerusalem. It's now 12 months until he is crucified. And the last, few, uh, the last while he spends around Jerusalem, definitely in this gospel account, many of the later chapters are all in the final weeks of his uh, uh, earthly life before his crucifixion in Jerusalem. But for now, we're, we're sort of trending to the end of his Galilee ministry and his vast popularity. Read with me in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. That word could otherwise be baptize or shower. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you've gained from me is Corban, which means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what? defile him. And when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and then is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the inerrant, infallible, perfect word of God, and everybody who loves to hear it said, Amen. Amen. May God bless it as we read it. This was quite a, a lengthy section, especially for the book of Mark, because remember, we, we've seen in the book of Mark that he's, he's action-packed, and every week that we've looked at the story, there's been, a, there's been a, 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 an action-filled event, a storm, many, many healings, a huge uh, uh, argument, and so no, no uh, different is this week. We've got um, the heavies getting into the ring together to have a public debate and argument. But this is pretty lengthy for what Mark usually does. And so we're going to be very, uh, like, uh, we, we want to take it all in one slog, uh, uh, take it at, at the pace that it's meant to be given, but dig into what Jesus wants us to know here. We're going to look at the sinfulness of authoritative tradition, the harm of authoritative human tradition, the powerlessness of religious tradition, and the source of religious tradition. And there won't be a quiz at the end. So much as you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're allowed out of here. <clears throat> and if you don't, we'll have you back tonight. So look first at the beginning of the uh, uh, section. We, back in verse 1, we see that the Pharisees gathered to him with the scribes. These were um, uh, <coughs> The scribes and Pharisees were sort of the... Um, Scholars of religion in Jerusalem. You had the Sadducees who were all about political power. They ruled the temple through the uh, high priesthood. But then you had the Pharisees and the scribes who were professional scholars and students of the long-handed down traditions of the elders and scribes that had gone hundreds of years before them. They were book people. They had memorized the first five books of the entire Old Testament. They had um, uh, synagogues where they would have continual ongoing teaching ministry outside of the temple in all of the towns. They were students of the book and the traditions. And so they've sent, probably the Galilean Pharisees, sent word back to Jerusalem because you remember 18 months ago, back when Jesus uh, offended their Sabbath laws and he healed a guy on the Sabbath in the synagogue after a sermon just to annoy them and teach them on the freedom that we have on a Sabbath rest day. After doing that, those Pharisees who were sworn enemies of Herod's family, remember we learned all about Herod's incestuous, whorish family, they were enemies of people who supported his family, yet those two got together and had a little conference meeting about how they would assassinate Jesus. Jesus was kicking up a lot of dirt and stirring up a lot of of strife. And so these Galilean Pharisees sent word to Jerusalem, send some heavies. We need to trap Jesus in his teachings so that we can bring a capital offense against him and have him killed. And so the Pharisees come up and uh, the scribes with him with them from Jerusalem, and they saw something that really, really offended them. And we'll see what it is in just a moment. But the first thing that we want to see here is Jesus' view of this tradition and the religious human laws that were developed and added to Scripture, what Jesus thinks about this false and human religion. We're going to skip to verse 7 so that we can, under, uh, so that we can go back and, and look at why Jesus says this. His response to what he sees coming out of them is, Isaiah did a tremendous job writing about you guys. 
He just hit the nail on the head. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This is the first thing about human tradition and religion, whether it's sort of inspired by the Bible or whether it's completely unbiblical, human tradition and religion is always, at its root, hypocritical. The word hypocritical is, is sort of the same word in the Greek that can be used of like an actor who in their days, instead of having huge makeup uh, 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 changes behind scenes and all the like, they would just carry different masks. They'd put on different masks for different characters. And, and that's sort of the word that's being used here. You mask wearers, your real self is hidden behind it. You give lip service, Isaiah said. So he quotes Isaiah, he says, Of you hypocrites, Isaiah wrote, This people honors me with their lips. On the outside and from what everyone else can hear, you are religious fanatics who love the Lord and serve him as he has commanded. You are God's best friends and best servants. But, Isaiah says, their heart is far from me. He's saying that there's a religious way to do lip syncing. That's really what he's saying here. Lip service is, is like when people get up on, 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 on a stage and, and they will move their lips while there's a great backing track from a much better singer. And, and any one of us, myself included, could be the best singer in all of the world if you let me lip sync. Any one of us could, through the use of deception and falsehood, become the, the greatest, most impressive performance singers as long as we can borrow somebody else's voice. And, 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 and God, through Jesus, using the words of Isaiah, is judging these men, saying that through religious tradition and your own self-propping up laws, what it is, is lip service. So that, so that man listens to, to the backing track and watches you on stage, but God hears what you sound like when you've got your earphones in and are belting it out passionately. Or a karaoke at a friend's 50th or 21st, right? That's what God hears. And so in the religious sense, he's saying that your heart is completely clouded and masked to everybody else. And you're very impressive. And they all like what they see. But God is appalled because your heart looks nothing like what this mask suggests. This is people who, who, who engage in religion, other religions, or Christianity, in this day, Judaism. But, but at home, they are abusing their wives, or they are engaging in all sorts of sexual immorality, or they are engaged in, in falsehood in their finances and cheating out other people. That They just come along to look good, keep the mask up, but behind the mask, they are rotten graves, Jesus will say in the coming chapter. All human tradition and false religion made by man enables man to impress other men, and that is all. It does not impress God whatsoever. The Pharisees were professionals at this. And the proof that it is all entirely hypocritical and it is all entire lip-syncing, lip-service with hearts far away is the beginning of the passage. The, the proof that Jesus is dead on in what he's saying is what it tells us at the beginning. Which is, back in verse 1 to 5, that these Pharisees who care so much for the righteousness of God while they have an assassination invoice in their back pocket, right? they're seeking the death of a teacher, Jesus, who they know has God's power. While doing that, they see men who dare 
to enjoy a barbecue without washing their hands like they're told in the religious traditional books. That's their problem. They're here to murder a guy, and they don't like the fact that guys aren't scrubbing under their nails for enough seconds according to the song that we're told during the COVID rules, right? That's what they care about. They're here to murder. They care about hand washing. And it says here, it sort of, Mark explains because he's writing to, to a Gentile audience, he sort of explains all of the craziness that was going on in the Jewish system to those who didn't grow up in it. He says in verse 3, for you see, the Pharisees and all the Jews, so apparently most of the nation followed what the Pharisees taught to be law, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And this word properly does not mean uh, decently. The, the point here is not hygiene. That's not the point. The Old Testament had laws around hygiene to help the people, and that was amazing. And yes, historically, the, the Jewish people had some of the lowest rates of infections and cancers and all, all that sort of thing that can come around from sexual or, or food laws or all of that sort of thing. Yes, the, 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 the Old Testament cared about hygiene. They don't. When they say they're not washing properly, they mean they're not washing according to the form and script that we're given. They don't care about cleanliness. Because they say the problem is that they're not following the rules, not that they're being unhygienic. And so he says, you know, they have all of these rules. Verse 4 says, when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. Because of the marketplace, again, this is ceremonial uncleanliness, not lack of hygiene. At the marketplace, you might bump up against a Gentile. Or you might bump up against somebody who's freshly killed an animal and then make you unclean because they've touched something dead. All that they care about is the ceremony. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, the very things the disciples of Jesus will get in trouble for later on in Jerusalem. Jesus looks at this and he's appalled that they even care. Mark has understated that when he says, and many other things they do, that is a complete understatement. They have, rightly, the Pharisees, separated the Old Testament up into 613 individual specific laws, which is fair. That's good. That's helpful. What they did then was create volumes of additional rules and laws around each of those 613 laws so that it was like a fence far away from the commandment so that you can't even accidentally get near to breaking it. And while that was helpful at first, it became law, it became inspired, it got to the point. And Jesus says here that they hold fast the traditions of the elders. It got to the point that a Jewish writer once wrote that it is more horrendous to break the law of the scribes than the word of God. He had the audacity to say that. They followed all of these rules. In fact, there's one second. They have 30 chapters on how to wash your wrists. So, so you can pardon Jesus for telling the guy that he doesn't really care about the scribal laws. Let's just be hygienic and enjoy a meal. And these murderers have the audacity to point out that they're not washing properly. So the sinfulness of authoritative human tradition is that it, 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 it propagates hypocrisy and it puts aside the word of God. It is, at its heart, idolatrous. The very first commandment that God would speak in the Ten Commandments is, have no other God before me, which, which Jesus will explain. Part of that means love the Lord your God, serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And a part of that is have no allegiance that you give a higher degree of obedience to than God through his word. And so you have to see that when people start obeying a higher authority and treasuring approval from another person higher than they care about the approval of God, fearing man rather than God, it is at its heart an act of idolatry even though all of their laws are seemingly trying to please the laws of God. To obey other rules was to set up a false god. This is, as John Calvin says, the very nature of mankind. The human heart, as it were, Calvin says, is a perpetual factory of idols. Even when it's given the good and perfect raw material of the word of God, it takes it, shapes it, makes it into an idol, and bows down before it to its own destruction. This is the human heart. So false religion is so sinful because it is hypocritical to its core, and it is idolatrous against God. Romans 1.25 sort of speaks to this notion when it says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. To follow human traditions over on top of the word of God is to worship the givers of those human laws over and above the laws of God that is given. So this is important for us because it's not just the Jews who do this. It's not just the Roman Catholics who, who necessitated the, the Reformation because they'd added so much to salvation and so much to the worship service with their traditions and their authoritative ex-cathedra doctrine of the Pope who could speak anything and it overruled anything else you might read. It's not just the Roman Catholics. It's not just the Mormons who add to the word of God. It's not just the pagan religions. It's us. We have the very same heart that if we are not careful and prayerful and submissive to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we will add additional rules, additional expectations and traditions that at first, J.C. Ryle says this, he says, at first all human rules are helpful. They're just, they're helps. You know, it's really, it's there to help you follow the rules and it's pretty handy to have. But next they become necessary. The next generation comes along who have been taught these rules alongside Scripture, and it's really not going to be authentic or holy church unless it has all of these rules that we've developed. And then lastly, it becomes idolatrous, where the Word of God is not helped anymore, and the Word of God is not having an equal anymore, which is bad enough, but that the Word of God is utterly destroyed and made of no effect. That's the flow that Jesus shows us in this text. He says, first... Um, he says that they are down in verse 8. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast to the traditions of men. Then in verse 9, he says, you reject the commandments of God. So you're not just leaving them to the side. You are now rejecting them. And later on down in verse 13, he says, then you make of no effect or you make empty. You make void. You destroy the word of God by your tradition. God's word and the authoritative human tradition cannot coexist. They corrode one another. And either what we have corroding is the true religion that leads to the gospel, or we have corroding our own foolish human traditions to our soul's salvation. So that is why Jesus hates and views as so sinful this authoritative human tradition. 
And I want to see here just this, this element from verse 8 through to 13, the harm of human tradition. One of the fundamental convictions we have to have about the Word of God is not just that it's true, and Christianity as a whole, when it's biblical, is not just true and not just righteous, which it is, but it is also good for people. Where Christianity goes, it's not just that objectively truth is being honored and righteousness is being upheld, but the people who are under the sway of Christianity are blessed and it trends towards human flourishing, and so it was with the Old Testament as well. Had they obeyed, they would find life and blessing and sustenance and human flourishing, people protected, life honored. Deuteronomy 13, uh, sorry, 32, verse 47. Moses is speaking out over the people and he says these words. It is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land. Obedience to the word of God brings flourishing. Or in Psalm 1, we see that the man who delights in the law of the Lord finds prosperity and blessing from God in all that he does. He's like a a tree, it says, planted right next to a brook of flowing spring water. It cannot but grow in flourishing. This is the blessing of true religion that God has spoken through his word. Yet, what we see here, which Jesus goes straight for, he shows that false religion and human traditions are not only false and evil, which they are, but they also are harmful for human beings. It's harmful and destructive because ideas have consequences and bad theology hurts people. Whether it's the Christian being told that they just don't have enough faith and if they didn't sin earlier in their life, they probably wouldn't be sick right now. Or whether it's the person being, being uh, through the twisting of Scripture, forced to give all, all of their savings and their income so that they can support the leaders of a certain Christian movement. Whatever it is, bad theology hurts people. We can see this in Hinduism, who burns women when their husbands die, so they can go with them and serve them in the afterlife. Or Buddhism's condemnation of all joy and fulfillment because desire is a terrible thing. We can see Islam's disparaging of women as utterly second-class creatures. Or the nihilism of atheism that time and again historically leads to the rising up of power and the crushing of the weak and vulnerable people because it's about the survival of the fittest. Every single time what is mingled with all of these as well, and Judaism was no different in Jesus' time, is the the flourishing of the leaders because of the abuse of the masses. And Jesus picks up this example uh, when he speaks of this law that they've set aside, which was good and from God, so that they can obey another tradition that is given, which is selfish and destructive to relationships. So he quotes here, he says, you know, the law of God says, honor your father and mother, and then the next chapter it says that those children who, who fail to honor their parents as life-giving, sustaining, teaching, given as teachers on earth in this time to point me to God and to show me stability as this, this, this core of society the family is, children who fail to recognize that and bring destruction, division, and disgrace to their father and mothers are allowed to be put to death. Try that one on for size these days. We'd have no generation left. 
I wouldn't have made it through my high school years. But anyway, here's the law. That, that, that is the extent to which one could be treated, and especially one of the applications was, if they failed to look after their parents in their old age. Let their, their parents go on struggling and starving and, and, and dying while they have the means to help and refuse to. And yet Jesus points out that you guys, from the tradition of the Pharisees, have, have evolved this little system called korban. And what it means is that people were allowed to say to their elderly parents who needed help, I'd love to help, Mum. Dad, you know how much I've appreciated you. It's just that I, I made an oath to God that everything I own belongs to him. And so I'm actually not allowed to give to you. I mean, Dad, do you want to steal from the Lord? I, I don't think so. You know, God can get pretty angry at people who, who, who steal his stuff. So I, I wouldn't suggest it. And you can have it if you want, but then I'm breaking a, a vow and you're destroying the family. You know, Mum, do you really want to do that? Right? This is what they would do. And the thing about this pledge was that it didn't have to be given. You would just say, everything I have belongs to God, and you didn't actually ever have to give it until you died. How very convenient. And so all of these elderly parents are going on, and we see in Jesus' day, widows are needing to sell their house to survive, and the money goes to the Pharisees. They take a house. They get a widow's offering. This was destructive and abusive that Jesus has shown, I hate the fact that you are neglecting the commands of God, but look at its fruit, the harm and abuse of those in need. Jesus and God, as he revealed to his prophets in the Old Testament, hates this type of religion. And then there's another extent to which God hates it. Look at verse 14. He's going he's gonna to put his gloves on and get in the ring now. Because he, he, he gave it back to the Pharisees right then, but you have to sort of set the scene. As the big heavies of the Pharisees start coming with their little announcers before them, saying, here come the Pharisees, make way, don't touch them, move out. All the crowd around Jesus would have had to make a, a large circle so that the Pharisees can come in without touching all the unclean people and make a little gathering in front of Jesus. So everybody else is sort of far enough away that they can probably hear, but they can't get in on the conversation. And these people have sought to disparage Jesus' reputation in front of all the people so that he loses his popularity. Jesus sharply addresses them, saying they are hypocrites, they are abusers, and they do not know the word of God. But that's not enough. I appreciate that we have a crowd here. Gentlemen, do what you wish. I'm calling the crowds in. And so he, I don't think he, he respected their little rule about touching people at all. I think he probably, probably crowded them in. He, see, he gathered everybody to himself, and these religious cowards are afraid of the unclean masses. Maybe they scurried out. Maybe they were trapped. Whatever the case was, now he's got the crowd's attention, and he's going to town. Because the foundation of this entire false system is the assumption that evil is on the outside and you can keep it out with our rules. Like very good but ungodly salesmen, they're convincing you they know the problem and if you just give towards me, I'll, I'll help you with this situation. They've got everybody wrapped around their fingers and Jesus is about to cut those fingers off. He's about to completely destroy the whole reason the masses follow and trust the Pharisees. This is Jesus' direction towards social repair. Not revolution, but repair. He doesn't try and take down and tear down the thrones and the walls and the political offices. He educates the people with the word of God and time and again throughout history, like in the Reformation 
and other such times, the education of the masses with the word of God is what destroys the stronghold of tyrannical statism and false religion. This is what Jesus shows us. Anyway, he gathers them to himself and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He has just blown apart the very foundation of that false religion. And and we don't need to pretend that everybody understood that day. The Pharisees are about to go away and ask him just what he meant. But he has started the destruction and the shaking of those foundations. Verse 17 says, When they had entered the house and left the people, to a little bit later on, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you also without understanding? I said it pretty clearly. We all sit here, 21st century, we get it. We're Christians. We've read the Bible. We get the story. The food, the fish, the dirt. In fact, the Pharisees had propagated a teaching that there was a demon that sleeps on men's hands while you sleep. And if you don't wash before you eat, then you'll consume the demon. Dangerous stuff. I don't know when it comes out of you to get back on your hands the next night. Is it a, is it a digestional tract thing? I don't know. Maybe they could put a filter over the, over the toilet so that they could trap it. I'm not sure, but this silly system had devised such a theology. And, and Jesus is saying, are you also quite foolish? Don't you realize, he says in verse 18, always gracious in teaching. He said to them, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Because, and he's talking here about ceremonial moral defiling. Like there's nothing on the outside which is able to make you sinful and evil and unclean in the sight of God. Because it goes in and it doesn't enter your soul. Jesus uses the word heart. He's not talking about the beating pump, but, but the, the seat of emotions and rational thinking and spiritual life. He says it doesn't go into your heart. You know where it goes? Through you. Let's not get any more graphic than that. It's as if Jesus is saying, a little bit crudely, because he does this in his Gospels. It's as if he's saying, every time you go and sit down on a toilet, think of the Pharisees. And remember, their religion's pathetic. Their teaching is mistaken and mysteriously foolish. There's nothing. Every time you relieve yourself, relieve yourself of the stress of worrying about what the Pharisees think. There you go. But he goes on to explain just a little bit more. He's established that the, 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 the powerlessness of human-made religion is that careful rules cannot save you because there's nothing on the outside you need to be kept from by careful rules. This also helps us interpret and understand the intention of God's law. Because we can think the same thing about God's law and say, but wasn't the Ten Commandments a list of things that we shouldn't do so that we don't become defiled? No, friend. God's given law was never so that we can achieve perfection. Always and ever, we're shown in the writings of Paul, that the law is given to reveal our uncleanliness, show us what is within us, and drive us to our one sole salvation, Jesus. It was never given so that you can be good enough. It was given to show you can never be. So, Jesus goes on. Or in fact, let's just look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, speaking especially of this same thing about how religion that props up outward rules has no power to save because the problem is not outside. 
Paul says, Colossians 2 verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Which say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These refer to things which all perish as they are used. He's using the same argument as Jesus. It goes in and it's broken down. There's nothing left of it. He says, why are you submitting to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Self-made religion, Paul calls it, are of no value because they are solving a problem that doesn't exist. Sin is not outside of you, trying to make its way in through what you touch, eat, and look at. We rather see a much more grave diagnosis from Jesus, which we'll see in the very next verse. And, and this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. You get the diagnosis wrong, and I bet some of us have been there. We've been diagnosed incorrectly. What follows next? An incorrect and unhelpful prescription. Try this drug, do this therapy, go here. This professional might be able to help. And two, no help because the diagnosis was wrong. Only Jesus, only the, the religion revealed from heaven through God's appointed apostles and prophets reveals the correct diagnosis of your soul. And we see that in Jesus' next words. He says down in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is not just describing sin. He's describing religion. When he says sin comes up out of the heart of man and he's pointed that all of their traditions and laws have come up out of men, what he's saying is that your religion is one of these things. One of the very sinful eruptions from the human black, sick heart that seep out this disgusting tar. Your religion is dug out from that. Out of the heart of man produce horrible religious laws of abuse and unrighteousness along with every other form of unrighteousness. The thing about sin is that it's not just something you've committed every once in a while, a few times a day. Maybe if you're really sensitive, about 10, 15 times a day, you notice sin creeping in. Jesus is saying it's not just something you've done a few times. It is who you are. You've never done anything but sin. Every breath outside of the willing submission to Jesus Christ as Lord is sin. It is the sustenance of an enemy against his cause. 
every time. We enjoy nature, sin, if it is not giving glory and worship and honor to God. Everything that a man does, that a woman does, that a child does, and let's be really clear, Jesus is saying that even the Pharisees do. He's not just describing the the, the life in prison jail mate. He's describing the good church boy, the Pharisee, the pastor, the missionary. Every one of us falls into this dire, grave diagnosis. Dead in sin, erupting out nothing but evil. It's a very damning reality. Because if we think about it, back in verse 6, quoting Isaiah, Jesus said the problem of religion. He says, the problem of religion is that you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So we might think the solution then is a higher level of devotion and a greater degree of commitment so that our hearts come more genuinely to the Lord God. But what Jesus just told us shows us that even that is damning. Even if you do bring your heart and not just your lips to God in vulnerability, all that you've done is brought evil into his presence so that a more devoted system of religion is not the solution. So we we realize how, how horrible this reality is for us as humans of the earth who've either followed other religions or we, just, we, we confuse the religion given to us from God or maybe we're not religious and you're just here today and you're hearing about what Jesus says, there is literally no solution for you. You cannot be saved because corrupted by sin, you can't do anything that undoes your prior sin or do any kind of religious act which brings yourself to God. Doing that only disgusts God. He said, your heart is ugly. Don't bring it near me, but I'll condemn you for not being genuine and bringing your heart to me. What must be done? Do you see the the Gordian knot that Jesus has tied here? It screams and it tells us that salvation, if possible, cannot come from us whatsoever. It has to be not only from outside of us, It has to be thorough in making us entirely new or we'll get ourselves back into the same issues. The Jews had religion from heaven and they corrupted it. But the new covenant prophesied by Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah was that God would not just give laws to us in our lap. He would write it on our heart. He would not just give us instructions. He would give us a new nature. So that this is what Jesus, in, and we don't have it in the text, do we? It's just a, a tirade of destruction against the evil religion and the hopelessness of the human dis, uh, 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 case. And yet what we understand in the rest of the gospel and the writing of the apostles is that Jesus has come to be what we could never be and give to us, reveal to us something we could never come up with. And he's opening the door to recreation to our core, which we could never achieve. So that he's bringing a religion revealed from heaven for our flourishing. The truth of God revealed to us. But he's also bringing, through his perfect life, lived under the law of God. Through his living, he's achieving a perfect righteousness for our justification. So that God can make us righteous because we've been imputed the righteousness of Jesus. 
He's achieving that to give to us. And, and then lastly, the issue was our nature. We have a false religion. We have no righteousness. Jesus solves those two. But we also have a corrupt nature. And Jesus solves that also. That by his resurrection from the dead, after paying for every sin, after satisfying the wrath of God, he rose from the dead as the covenant Lord over all creation. And returning to heaven, he had the authority to send to us the Holy Spirit and through him create people with new natures so that that we will uh, uh, inhabit heaven to come. He made the world by the word of his power to begin with. And he's recreating us by the word of his power today. This is the solution and the salvation and, and what I implore you to take up today if you have not already. There is no level of human tradition you can commit to that will wipe away a single sin or even keep away a single sin. It is itself disgustingly sinful. There's nothing that you can do to undo or to recreate yourself, no matter how many self-help books or YouTube videos or therapy counseling sessions you go to. What you need is a new nature given from God. And what you need is a righteousness given to you by Jesus so that God can declare you righteous. All of this, a, a new religion that is perfect and for our flourishing and our joy, a righteousness for us before the law, and a new nature all comes by faith in Jesus' finished work. He came, he taught us, he lived for us, he died in our place, he rose again, and he is now victorious Lord, pouring out repentance and faith to anybody that comes to God through him. Do not delay, but believe and be changed and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we are, we are sinful to the core, and we have seen this played out through the revealed word of, of, of the Bible in the Old Testament, all throughout history. No matter how many laws given, our response was greater sin. And God, even in our own lives, we've seen this, we've felt this, maybe grown up in church, and the more we hear laws, the more we realize our guilt. Lord, I pray that you would, you would give that freedom to people that comes when they believe that Jesus is their everything, that Jesus has done what they cannot do, that he's died for what they have done, and that they can give an entire new existence, new creation, new nature to their heart and soul. Please, Lord, would you give that faith to those sitting here today who do not yet know the joy of salvation and freedom in Jesus. And may we live as those, Lord, who do not pile up on our own traditions, who do not cloud your word with our own laws and rules, but, Lord, who delight in the freedom that we all have in conscience and the word of God as Christians. And may we, may we worship now in freedom and in spirit and in truth because Jesus is our Lord and he saves us to the uttermost. Hallelujah, Lord. All we have is Christ and he is all we need. Amen. Amen.